One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast that uses musical memories as a means of getting to know our guests. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest today is Les Stroud. Les has done so much, I'm going to stick pretty tight to the top paragraph of his long Wikipedia entry for the beginning of this. Les Stroud is a Canadian survival expert, filmmaker, and musician. He's best known as the one-man band creator of the TV series Survivor Man, which had seven seasons from 2005 to 2015. He had a short career mostly behind the scenes in the music industry and has also worked as a full-time wilderness guide, survival instructor, and he's a musician. Over the years, he's produced survival-themed programming for the Outdoor Life Network, the Discovery Channel, the Science Channel, and YTV, and probably more because Wikipedia can be behind the times sometimes. As a musician, Stroud has shared the stage with many names and bands at the top of the business. His songwriting style is described as, quote, an eclectic gambit from art, folk, to contemporary rock and progressive rock. He's written all the theme songs for his TV shows and scored several independent films. Les has recorded six albums, including Bittern Lake in 2018 and most recently Mother Earth in 2019. It's an art rock genre album and includes solo from Slash from Guns N' Roses on the lead single One Giant Farm and a feature solo from Steve Vai on the title track Mother Earth. Les came across our line of sight because while most television productions have mostly shut down due to COVID-19, he's working on a new show for public television called Surviving Disasters with us here at WGCU-TV where we make this show. We caught up with him from the studios of Jefferson Public Radio on the campus of Southern Oregon University. Hey there, Les Stroud. How you doing? Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, just a real quick aside, I am uh, the technical director for the Fort Myers Film Festival, which opens tonight. I was down there just before this doing a tech run-through, and the guy that runs tech there is from Maine. And I thought maybe he would be a fan of yours, and I mentioned we were doing this, and he said, holy sh**, Les Stroud? So, anyway, you got a fan <laughs> at the Sydney and Burn Davis Art Center in Fort Myers, Florida. <laughs> well, that, that's good. That makes, that's, that's one fan beyond my, but, my, my wife. That's good. <laughs> okay, so um, are, were you um, a musician first and then became an outdoorsman survival person, or were you an outdoors survival person at heart uh, who also plays music? Well, good question for, for, for my background because it's, it's been a kind of a running kind of, I don't know, how, what is it? Is it a battle between the two or is it it's a constant? You know, I think in the end they've, they've, they've ended up always working together. It's been... Um, I wax and I wane between the two of them on a constant basis. In the very beginning, um, the the influence that I had, I, I grew up in the suburbs, so there was no nature, um, short of we had a big backyard. And then on the odd occasion, I guess we would go up to cottage country to my grandmother's house. But it was watching Jacques Cousteau on television and, and Tarzan mm. and Mutual Omaha's Wild Kingdom uh, that really instilled the love of, of nature. It, it, nature got me first. Nature got me when I was young. Music hit... Well, I knew I had an affinity for it, you know, in around that age group of, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 years of age. But it hit me hard when I was, when I, was about, I guess, 14. What was your first instrument that you picked up and fiddled with? Oh, my goodness. Well, <laughs> if you're counting school, uh, then it was the bass violin. And, you know, so pudgy little me in grade six playing, you know, naturally because I'm the pudgy kid, I get the bass violin. 
Uh, I don't know why they do that, but stereotypically that always ha- happens. So I, it's like, and I, of course I played goalie too instead of forward. So uh, Pudgy Little Me got the bass violin uh, in school, and then I went from that to try to do piano. Pretty hard to learn piano when you don't have one at home, uh, and then uh, and then from that to guitar and harmonica uh, eventually. How would you characterize the musical background of your childhood when you were growing up in terms of what you were being exposed to, what your parents were listening to, stuff like that? Well. I thought a lot about this, knowing I was going to have this, this, this chat with you, uh, because in many ways, I feel like, I feel like I, I'm so lucky to have been part of an era of music, and, and I know we can all say that about our childhood, I get that, but there just seems to have been something about that era of music, a 10-year stretch between 64 to 74, that really laid down what I believe has been the groundwork for, you know, most music, a ton of music that has come since then. I'm talking about popular music, rock and roll, folk rock, pop, that kind of stuff. I'm not, you know, obviously not talking about jazz or classical or blues, uh, but but the in, the in the popular vein. So I grew up in the thick of that, you know, I, I was, but I was, you know, too young for the Beatles, uh, in a way, uh, at least when they hit big, I was still, you know, eight years old kind of thing, uh, six years old. So characterizing what I grew up in and, and the influence, um, you, ha- you have to then look at your home front. You know, what is it there? Um, I had a pretty dysfunctional home. But I suppose the one and only thing that my mother was very big on was music. And so knowing or, or being around someone who appreciated or loved music, that was good for me. Um, because as I got older, because you know how we get when we when we get into teenagers, we become very loyal to certain forms of music, certain bands. Right, at least yeah. this is the way it used to be, anyway. Um, not so much now, but, but back then. And yet, I remember thinking, even even when I was you know full fledged teenager and into you know Led Zeppelin and all of the classic rock era, I, I would still come home and I had no problem watching Finian's Rainbow or Brigadoon uh, and you know or listening to John Denver. Uh, because I just love so many different aspects of music. So, so I think all of us as artists, we always want to say, oh, my, my, you know, my influences are all over the place, but they really kind of were for me because I never shied away from listening, you know, if I heard a classical piece. I was still too young for jazz. I didn't know. I was, <laughs> I was, that, as that phrase goes. I'm still too young for jazz, and I'm 48. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a great lover of jazz now, but definitely too young for it then. So, so that... That was my background. It was it was the popular music of '64 to '74, and but with a mind that was open to not just what my friends were listening to. If I try to challenge you to go back to as early a musical memory as you can recall, what would flash into your head? Hmm. Well, I gotta say, again, let's let's ignore public school band. Let's ignore that. If we're talking listening. Earliest memories would have been around being in my basement of just a dungy, you know, one of these, this is the kind of basement where you, you didn't dare plug something into the wall or you're going to get an electrical shock, <laughs> uh, damp, you know, the big arm furnace over there that I was afraid to walk past in the dark, uh, you know, sort of grungy basement where I would play with my dinky dinky, uh, dinky cars, you know, Tonka trucks and all of that sort of stuff. But th- <laughs> when I became to, started to love music, uh, what was big at that time were 
a lot of the novelty songs. And again, I was thinking about this on the way here. You know, my 45s back then that I first started getting would have been Peter and Gordon or um, oh, High on the Mountain of Love, you know, stuff, these, these just cheesy sort of novelty era songs, the, the Monster Mash and uh, uh, The Streak and stuff like that. And I would play those 45s on a little turntable in this damp basement, always getting an electrical shock whenever I would touch the, the arm and put, try to put the needle on. And I would pretend I was a disc jockey, as a matter of fact. That's my earliest memory of really, really knowing music. I was pretending to be a little disc jockey. You know, when you just said Tonka Trunk, Tonka Truck, I was transported back to my babysitter's house in Kansas City in probably 1976, hearing Bad Bad Leroy Brown for the first time. True story. <laughs> well, and I think, they, you know, with what you've asked me, you know, to, you know, what I'm here chatting with you about today is the concept of music and memories. And we know that memories can be triggered by a smell, um, a sound, um, beyond music. But, but music, you, I mean, you're talking to a guy whose whole life has been, you know, a constant uh, reference to music and memory. Uh, it, it's, I, could have, I could have given you 2,000 songs to play today that, that, that trick my memory and that take me right back to that place. And, and not only just because that's a thing that happens to us as humans, but I've been purposely like that. I've, I've purposely noticed a song that is part of a moment. And, but the thing is, it takes time for you to get on the other side of that, late, like years later to go, oh, and now it's a memory. Oh, and now that song is connected to that memory. But there is something inherently powerful about music and just transporting you right back to your babysitter's house, right? And I can, I can picture myself in the basement, you know, li uh, listening to 20, 20, 22 groovy greats with James Brown hot pants, uh, you know, or, uh, um, ooh, child, things are going to get easier. Well, that stuff, that, that was, you know, what I used to pretend. And I was, you know, got to think I was only eight years old at that time. That's so. soul, too. That's wonderful. Yeah, and, and, and when I talk about a Tonka truck, I was small enough that I was pushing it around standing up. So I was and they were made of metal back <laughs> then. Oh, it was a metal truck for sure. They were um, made of metal. And, and we used to get these big plastic orange pumpkin heads that were meant for getting Halloween candy. But later in the, in the year, they were great to hold all of your uh, your dinky toys. Exactly. I love how perfect it is. It's on theme for October right now. Too. So <laughs> I, I sort of love that. When you mentioned the Monster Mash, I was like, yes. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, okay, a little well, tip on that, you know, a little thing on that Monster Mash. Do you know the, the Monster Mash song uh, is the most successful novelty song of all time? Up until even just a few years ago, the writer of that song, and it's the only song he ever wrote, was still getting 60000 bucks a year. I mean, it is a graveyard smash. Yeah, yeah no, that, does, that actually doesn't surprise me. <laughs> and it's on in a flash, too, Tara. <laughs> is it so old that it's like uh, free, what is it, you know, post-copyright? Or is it still, it's not that old, I, I guess. Think, I know the Misfits did a cover of it. That's as much as I know about public that. Public domain is the word you're looking <laughs> yeah, for. That's public the domain. word I'm looking for. Yeah, uh, no, okay. the guy's, apparently the guy's still alive. And it was definitely, you know, the, he's got, he gets his money for it. There, so there was no problems there. It was written on, as a joke. Uh, uh, um, was it Boris Karloff and the Crickets was the name of their joke band. And they used yeah. to do it at parties, just joking around. And, and we, what it was is he did the accent. And they said, you should do it. You should do a recording uh, with your with the accent of Boris Karloff, and the Monster Mash was born. Um, okay, uh, last question before we proceed to your first song is: Do you remember the first music that you owned that was yours because you chose it? That's a really tough one um, because uh, due to a, a nefarious teenage, a nefarious youth. I'm trying to think of the right phrase here. Due You're to saying a you really stole a record? Ill-spent teenage years, I've, I've I've forgotten a lot of things uh, oh, in my past, no. but trying to remember. That I want to say, 
I want to say it's going to revolve around for, uh, having a 45. You remember the little 45 discs, for those who aren't sure what that is. Uh, 45 RPM, little 45 disc, and it would have been, uh, you know, it probably would have been something like, um, uh, oh, man, not there's a kind of hush, but I'm thinking Peter and Gordon. Uh, songs Paul McCartney wrote for Peter and Gordon. It would have been one of those, or like I say, maybe Mountain of Love. Well, 22, 20, 22 or 24 Groovy Greats, that vinyl album. Uh, that one I absolutely remember being quite likely the first album I ever owned. 22 Groovy Greats. Yeah, I know. Okay. R- Richard's going to pull up those. We're going to find a Groovy Great to play later. But let's proceed to your first song. Um, did you send them to me in the order we're playing them, I presume? I think so. The, I mean, the, the first song... Uh, should I go right into it for you? Yeah, go for it. I believe it's Indian Reservation, so pick it up from yeah. there. Yeah. So there's a, you know, try, as I said, I could have given you easily 2,000 songs to touch on memories, but um, I tried to think of ones that were maybe somewhat more significant than just a moment. And uh, Indian Reservation, first of all, what a, a weird setup for a song. A bunch of white guys from England singing about the Cherokee people. It's just it's so probably culturally inappropriate, but it was there. And, and what it did for me was I remember that song being the first favorite song. Like it was, this was my favorite song. I remember that's the first song I ever said that about. And what it was, I think, I think now looking back, is that that song had a touch of novelty to it, so it comes out of the streak and the monster mash and all of that era. And I'm just a kid, remember? I'm just a little kid. Uh, let's say 10 years old, probably. It comes out of that, in, 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 and its subject matter touched on uh, indigenous cultures of North America, which to me was, was incredibly fascinating because of uh, my viewing on TV and my love of nature and books that I'd read. So there was that, but then musically speaking, they, especially with the very ending, I'm pretty sure it's likely to be a, 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 a B3, Hammond B3 being played through a Leslie. And it touched on blues. And I bec- I've become, I've been playing blues all my life and I'm a, I'm a, a very strong lover of blues. And it touched on it just kind of at the end with the sound of that B3 going through the Leslie. And so I think what Indian Reservation did for me in that moment in time, and, and if, I, if we want to have the imagery, I remember sitting on the front of my L-shaped veranda, 9 McDonald Street in Mimico, Ontario, Canada, big old 100-year-old uh, farmhouse, and I'd be sitting out there, tra- transistor radio, horrible sound, in my pajamas with a plate with, with rich crackers and peanut butter, rich mellow peanut butter on my plate, eating these crackers at bedtime, but playing that little transistor radio and when Indian Reservation would come on I was transported and, and transfixed. So I think that's what Indian Reservation did for me. It, it took me out of the novelty of being a little kid and listening to novelty songs into rock and roll and blues and it touched on a theme that for some reason seemed to resonate with me. I, it was like a little faint glimpse of nature in that it was speaking of a, of a, of a culture that was nature-based. So, yeah, I've tried to figure, as you can tell, I've put some thought into this, and this is, that's, this is where I've landed with it. Well, thanks for bringing, yeah. your, bringing your storyteller, uh, Les Stroud. We really appreciate it. Um, let, let's, are you sitting on a, a swinging porch swing, by the way? That's for some reason what I was imagining. No, no, we're sitting uh, <laughs> uh, just on a, probably just an old 70s, early 70s couch, 
uh, overlooking a, a suburban street, you know, with summertime, August, warm so that little kids can sit out on the porch in their pajamas still at, at you know, the late hour of 8.30 p.m. or something like that. All right, this is Indian Reservation by Paul Revere and the Raiders, released uh, in 1971. When was the last time you listened to that song? Oh, it's funnily enough, I tried to find it in the last year, and, and uh, speaking of copyright, here's, here's some backstory to that stuff. Uh, I believe that it's been, it had to be re-released because of, you know, messed up copyright management situations. The Paul Revere and the Raiders apparently were as successful as they were because the mafia backed them and the mafia bankrolled to make that band. It was the mafia deciding they wanted to get into rock and roll and they bankrolled and made up this, they bankrolled Paul Revere and the Raiders. It's a crazy documentary about it. And then the other backstory to this is, again, with my, you know, sort of unknowing, I don't, I don't know why I was interested in nature so much and also indigenous cultures, but I would go on to work with uh, aboriginal populations and indigenous cultures around the world on a constant basis and then find out two years ago that I'm 116th Blackfoot. So again, coincidence, probably, but it's just, it just always gives, causes me to reflect on, you know, why was that particular song such as so instrumental in in making me fall in love with music i don't know but it it definitely it did it, it turned me from a kid listening to you know cute little love novelty songs to um uh, a young teen teen about to start to fall in love with rock and roll you know and probably the, the distance between a transistor radio and these good studio headphones with the stereo and everything was pretty 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 far oh i would think so but you can remember what we i mean oh my gosh yeah you, we used to listen to the it would any you know it didn't bother us back then. I think there was just something about all of these different pieces of music. You always hear those stories. Oh, I, I would be in my bed at night listening to such and such a radio where I first heard Johnny Cash or what have you. And so the same for me, you know, transistor radio, listening to, you know, uh, the Beatles or, or, or I, can, I can still remember the sound of Live and Let Die on a terrible, crappy little, you know, uh, cassette player sort of thing. So, so when did you pick up a guitar? Uh, was it acoustic or electric? And did you take right to it? Uh, no, I, I'm a horrible guitar player. Uh, I, I picked up, um, I went to electric because it was easier on the fingers. And it was a Hagstrom electric guitar. And I went to take lessons. And this was the deal. See, now, thinking of musical memories, this was the deal. One of the few kind of nice moments I had with my mom was our deal was so long as I went once a week to learn guitar properly from a guitar teacher, my mom would buy me a 45 while we were there because the guitar teacher was at the record store down in the basement. So that was my motivation. And, and, uh, um, and of course, I started to fall in love with the music of Elton John and, and, and people like that. And, and, um, and so it was a Hagstrom electric guitar. I went there. But no, I was terrible. I, so I'm still terrible. I'm, 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 <laughs> I can make it look kind of fun on stage, but no, I'm a horrible guitar player. How far between uh, picking up a guitar and being in a David Bowie cover band? Wow. Um, Let's see, 14 to 24, 10 years. How did that come about? How long did you guys play? Oh, it was an ill-fated situation, <laughs> which is too bad because the lead singer kind of looked like Bowie and he really nailed the vocal well. Um, that's a whole thicker other story, but it was basically, I was to be the Mick Ronson of that unit. I was to, to play that role, you know, which, which it was great because uh, being that it was 1984-ish, I had to learn all the variants, variances of, of Bowie's guitar 
sound. So I was learning Carlos Alomar and um, Mick Ronson and Stevie Ray Vaughan all at the same time. It was great for, for my chops at, the, at that time. That was about the only time in my life where I did have some chops. I kind of let it go after that. But Les, uh, I hear you play a mean harmonica. When did you pick that up? So it was the harp thing. And again, speaking of musical memories, boy, we could I could go there. It's, I'm, I'll just tell this one story. And we're not playing a song, but uh, the first riff I ever learned, well, to answer your question, it was in college. And the reason was I wasn't, I was in music college in London, Ontario, and all the other guitar players are all better than me. So there was no, I wasn't going to be, this was before the David Bowie clone band, so I wasn't going to be any kind of player that way. But I'm a good showman, and so, and my, and my voice is not that strong, but I'm a good showman, and I, and I knew that was a big part of the process. So I joined a, a local pub band, and um, Picked up the harp and thought, well, let's start with uh, Roadhouse Blues. You know, keep your eyes on the road, your hands upon the wheel. That's the riff. And so I learned that riff, first riff I ever learned. And, and I discovered that I just had to show up with a harmonica in my pocket. Wow, no amplifiers, no chords, no nothing. Later on, of course, I went electric with it and it became a different story. Now I have big amplifiers. But, but to fast forward that story is to go to uh, about four or five years ago. And long story short, I'd become friends with uh, Alice Cooper and, and uh, I'd played for charities for him and stuff. And I get a phone call from Alice's people and they said, uh, yeah, listen, this year um, Alice is having uh, Robbie Krieger from The Doors is coming and, and uh, for the charity concert and they're going to they're gonna play Roadhouse Blues and well, they were wondering if you'd come and play the harmonica part. <laughs> so I find wow. myself on stage with Robbie Krieger from The Doors playing Roadhouse Blues, playing that harmonica riff. The story's much longer than this because it just oh it meanders goodness. all over the place. It was crazy how I ended up on that stage. But I will say that literally I'm running through the back hallways like Spinal Tap trying to find the stage entrance, <laughs> jumping up on stage just in time to land in front of my microphone and go da 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 with Alice looking over going, where the heck were you? And then that was it. And Robbie Krieger going, hey, Les, you know, when we get to the middle part and... I play a solo. Would you mind coming over and we'll, we'll pass a solo back and forth? And I'm like, I've got an harmonica. I'm like thinking like, okay, Robbie Krieger. It's just like, are you kidding me? Okay, Is Robbie this even Krieger. Real? I just did love you, that kind of story. Um, I mean, I did, you, did you know you had the chops or were you like had a, do- a little touch of imposter syndrome or was it an out-of-body experience or that seems pretty intense? <laughs> I think my whole life is a little touch of imposter syndrome. Uh, um, but um, I, let's just say I knew I could fake the chops. How, how about that answer? That's a great answer. Um, how many bands have you been in over the years? <clears throat> oh, mostly they're all me and they're all mine. Um, okay. I'm such a control freak that way. And you know what? Because I'm not a pure musician, because I'm not a, a magician that way, like so many wonderful, talented people I work with, the only time I ever show up just as a musician is to blow harmonica. Uh, otherwise, i got to be the leader. It's got to be my stuff, my music, um, because that's kind of... I don't know. That's, it's easier. <laughs> it's just easier for me to play my own stuff. Um, I can't show up, and, and there's so many better guitar players than me. You don't, you don't need me to stand there and try to play a guitar solo for you on a certain song. Uh, it's not going to happen. However, harmonica, yeah, give me, give, me that, give me that little spot on the stage, and we're going to have some fun.
Um, you, you, um, you know, obviously you're a filmmaker. You're a person who creates a lot of different sorts of media. Um, I've been looking into your past. I found a little short documentary uh, that was about the making of Snowshoes and Solitude. Um, what made you decide to do that? And not just, I, I, th- I don't think really to do it, but then to film it. What was the trigger that made you go, aha? I mean, were, were you already, uh, you know, a videographer? Were you already, you know, creating visual media? Or was that something that you learned to do that? Well, I think not unlike this conversation about music, you have, I think you have to remember what was the era like? What was going on when something happened? What was going on when somebody wrote a song or produced a TV show or made a film? What was actually happening, you know, in the world? And at that time, there were no real films of outdoor adventure happening anywhere other than Warren Miller and his ski films. Uh, Jacques Cousteau wasn't even doing any that stuff anymore. A lot of nature shows had gone by the wayside. They'd become passe. So around the time that I was, and at, at this point now, you know, I'm, I'm whatever, I'm 30 or 28 or 29 or 30, something like that. So I'm already a, a well-honed outdoor guide and survival instructor and all of this. Um, and I'd already left behind my music and, and, and you know, side stories that, as part of being a musician, I was also working on rock videos, and I was hanging out with editors and cameramen and learning all that stuff. But that was all oh, gone. Right. Yeah, I left all that behind 10 years before and was nothing but an outdoor nut for the longest time. But when we decided to spend a year living in the bush, it was just the the performer in me had been on a hiatus for 10 years. And the performer in me said, you know, or let's say the storyteller in me. Uh, yeah, more impro- appropriately, the storyteller. The storyteller in me said, you know, this is this is a really this is going to be a really good story. I, I, I should, you know, and I can't have a crew there, so I should film this. And it was, uh, you know, every once in a while, an idea, and the technology you need to carry out that idea coincide. And when that happens, it's just a perfect match. And I was lucky that just at that time. Cameras uh, with the little Hi8 tapes were were being produced, and they were light enough to carry. And you didn't have to be, you didn't have to bring a big Bolex film camera or a Sony Digi Beta Cam or any of these big massive shoulder mounts. You could bring this little, you know, I had a little JVC Hi8 camera, and it got decent enough quality that that you could tell your story, you could film your story, and that's how I put it all together. I spent a lot of time with a Sony Hi8. I was wondering if it, you know what what was that about, but um, I don't want to dwell too much on this. But I'm really curious how you handled, you know, protecting the gear, protecting your tapes, and making you know having electricity to charge your camera. Oh, it was really simple: one Pelican case and one car battery with one solar panel with some, and I would hook it up and I would charge the battery during the day, and then I would charge my camera batteries uh, during the night and uh, keep filming. That was it. The- that's awesome. And, and uh, well, I'm glad you answered that because I, I was really curious. Um, okay, this is a, a question that we've added recently, so be ready. Um, oh. If you were a cocktail or a drink, Les Stroud, what, what kind of cocktail or drink would you be? Oh, probably. Um, well, funny you should say that. Almost as, <laughs> almost as if you're just giving me the perfect segue because I just happen to be releasing a new series. Well, it's out now, a new series on public television called Les Stroud's Wild Harvest. And in it, I find all these uh, great wild edibles right outside your door, and then Chef Paul Rogalski turns them into amazing, an amazing meal. However, part of my role on the show is I get to make a cocktail, or a tea, yes. or some wine, oh. or some beer. And so recently, I've discovered blending 
um, a couple of wild ingredients. I did. I took goldenrod, um, uh, wild mint, um, sweet gale, cedar tips, and I shook them all up in a uh, with. Um, uh, I forget it's called. I think it's called Doyle's gin that was in the freezer and a, and a, and a high quality tonic and made a really nice wild harvested G and T. So so I love something gin like that. tonic so much and all of those things that you just said. The wild harvested G and T. I'm like yes. There you what go. Would it Bet be you didn't expect that answer. What would it be called? You got to name it. Oh, I got to name it. Hmm. Well, I got well, this is kind of prosaic, but I, I I would I would name it the wild harvest. Got it. The wild harvest. The wild harvest. Okay. Um, I'm um, going to pretend it's made just for me. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, we're, and we're actually we're putting together like a like a cookbook for cocktails, and you'll be in it. So there you go. Mm. Another thing for your resume. Um, okay. Before we get to your second song, when was the last time you drank Guinness with a podcast mogul at midnight? <laughs> I think I know which one. What you're referring to. <laughs> that was, a couple that was of part years of my ago. show prep last. I'd never seen his uh, shows before, and I watched yours. It was fun. Did you? Did, but you watched the set. You didn't watch both of them. Did you know I was on twice? I, I did, but I did not have the cycles to get the earlier one in. So uh, I watched the so most. Richard did. Richard. Richard can chime yeah. in here. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I watched. I so so I listened. Um, I was listening back during the first one when he was like even doing like whatever it was called UStreamer. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it was it was a lot looser. Let's say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, in the the first one I did with him, I think it was episode six thirty two or something like that. Yeah, uh, you know, I was able to play some music, and he was uh, a lot. He was sort of he was just you know trying to get his footing. On the second time I was with him, he still hadn't found his footing, but he he definitely gotten a much more of an attitude and a stronger sort of opinion on stuff. And unfortunately, that night, the backstory is I was out with him that night partying, and it was we started that interview at one a.m. And my faculties were not there because when he challenged me on a couple of things, any other time I would have gone, wait a second, and I would have pushed back. I was just too uh, tired, shall we say. Yeah, you sure. guys you guys, you guys were, you know. It was like after a set, right? It was, at, yeah. Yep. And, and, but it, it, was, it was fun, though, anyway. So, um, so we've got. Do you, uh, and and uh, I'm no, sure no, everybody's yeah. wondering who we're talking. We're talking about Joe Rogan. And, and we are. He's yes, the number one podcast jo- in the world right now. Um, and I could go on forever. But, I, like, look, don't get me wrong. I like Joe Rogan a lot. He's a, he's a, he's a great guy, a wonderful hang. Um, he's definitely a frat boy who, who hasn't grown up. But he's also <laughs> a very intelligent man with a very strong wit, fast wit. Obviously, he's a stand-up comedian who riffs mostly when he does his routine. Uh, and some of his stuff is just brilliant. But I, but it's been interesting watching his metamorphosis. This isn't what we're here to talk about. But it's been interesting watching his metamorphosis in podcasting and, uh, you know, tapping into bigger, you know, these sort of high intellects of of Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris and and people like that. And now Graham Hancock and Brian Murarescu and and so on. It's interesting to watch him go there because sometimes I I want to say you're, you're you're out of your league right now, Joe, aren't you? You're 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 a little bit. The water's getting a bit deep there. You better because you can tell when he. Gets in water that's deep for him because he starts making frat jokes and is like, "You're not. You're this guy's being too straight for you, isn't it? You need somebody to be, be more funny." So anyway, I have an opinion on the matter. That's all. Okay. Well, anyway, yeah. thank you for for you know putting up with that question. So um, okay, let's move on to your second song, um, uh, "Maggie May" by Rod Stewart. What's the story? Well, I think uh, this is taps into and, and and you can tell by. The, the, and I know you, you know what my third song is going to be, and it's kind of like, what? Where'd that come from? And I won't mention it, but we'll stick with Maggie May at the moment and say that if I tried to, if I took an amalgam 
of all of my deeply memory-associated songs from my childhood. And let's face it, you know, I know we have memories from college and from getting married and adulthood, but really, really, it's those songs, those pieces of music that touch our teenage memories, you know, our adolescent memories that always seem just somewhat, I don't know, uh, stronger, deeper. So if I took an amalgam of the couple of thousand songs that touched me so much in my early teenage years and had to put them all together, they all point to Rod Stewart's Maggie May. Now, I know anybody listening might, might go, oh, groan, like I've heard that song a million times. I know, I get it. But understand that when a song touches your memory deeply, it doesn't matter if you've heard it 10,000 times. It comes on the radio and you are instantly turning it up. You're instantly shutting out. You'll, I'll, I'll pull the car over the side of the road sometimes if a, a great song comes on. If, as soon as I hear the first chord, notes of More Than a Feeling by Boston, I'm like, everybody shut up. And I crank the... <laughs> and, and, you know, the response, oh, that's so cheesy, you know, corporate rock and schmaltzy. No, remember, these songs were not schmaltzy and were not cheesy and were not cliche in their moment. They became that 10 million plays later, but they weren't in their, in their moment. They were often new and even radical pieces of music. So if we were there when they first came out, when you first heard Boston's album, for example, you know, Cheesy Rock, no, not when it first came out, it wasn't, because when it first came out, uh, they did something that no other band had ever done. They recorded at home. That was the first album or a band ever recorded at a home studio. Nobody mm. knows that story. You know, so Rod Stewart and Maggie May, that song just breathes the early 70s to me. And I wrote another, a song of my own called Clouds. And in it, I do a little bit of, I, I do some uh, spoken word. And I say, I, I remember uh, lying in the back window of my father's uh, car before the seatbelt laws, Pontiac AM, Maggie May. That's the words from my own song. And when I say before the seatbelt laws, I'm sure a lot of younger people hearing this wouldn't not be able to relate to the concept of you being eight years old and lying across the back window of a big Pontiac, mm -hmm. you know, driving down a highway. But, you know, right or wrong, obviously wrong, we used to do that. Um, we had not yet gotten the seatbelt laws. And when I would lie there, you know, uh, sometimes getting too hot in the sun with the cat down on the seat, probably vomiting as we're driving along the highway, going to the cottage. When those first strains of Maggie Mae would come on and understand that as a writer myself, I'm a big champion of lyrics. I will fight that fight to the grave. And yet, in this particular case, the lyrics don't matter so much to me. First of all, they were speaking about stuff that I was too young to understand anyway. Love affair gone bad kind of stuff, right? But it's the sound of the mandolin. I believe the acoustic guitar that plays the solo is probably slack-tuned down a bit. And there's a sound to that song that to me encapsulates everything that was great about music that we were hearing for the first time, folk rock, uh, rock and roll through higher quality recording equipment, um, rock power chords. We were hearing all of that for the first time and here comes this song that, that has mandolins and a slack tune acoustic guitar and Rod's voice, you know, in peak condition at this point. And so every, I, I heard it four weeks ago at a wedding 
and I, I just, I, I found myself picking up my pace to get over to the tent where the where that song was playing, just to hear that song, and then to turn and walk and go back to my cabin where I was on my way to. So, so that's that's for me. Rod Stewart is it's the sound of the early seventies in, in, encapsulated. All right, let's listen to it. Uh, Maggie May, Rod Stewart from his nineteen seventy one album Every Picture Tells a Story. Did you ever get to see him live? You know, no, I don't, no, I didn't. I've seen an awful lot of concerts, but I had to think about that for a second. Uh, but I have not, I've not seen Ross. You know, when I hear that, uh, there's that whole thing where they, they break it down just before the outro, and I've always been in love with that when I hear it in a song. And, and, and you know, that era did that. You know, you think of um, Bob Seger's Night Moves where it all stops, and then you're just down to that one acoustic guitar. It's just like, emo- there's emotion involved in that. Yeah, sure, it's a, it's a device, it's a technique of songwriting, I get it, but, but it's still, it's a good one. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I just think of all that stuff. I, I, I was just thinking while I was listening, you know, I, I remember hearing Jack, Black, or Jack White <laughs> uh, say um, that he listened to Sun House, and I'm a big lover of Sun House, which is a mm. traditional uh, blues artist from a long time ago. Um, same era as Robert Johnson. In fact, they knew each other. Uh, he's just trying to get there. And I know exactly what he means because in, when I play blues, I feel the same way. I'm just trying to get to Sunhouse. When I play my, my roots rock, I'm just trying to get to Maggie May. I'm trying to hmm. get to Night Moves. And maybe a little later on, you know, some running on empty. But that's, I'm just trying to get back there, I think. You know, that, uh, that's, the, I think, the third or fourth time on this show that that's the second time this song has come around. So we had a, an earlier guest in year one who was, he had just retired. He was the longest um, serving commander in the Royal Australian Navy. Yeah. And his first or second song was about being stationed in Hawaii and falling in love with an older woman. And this being the song that will always remind him of that. So it's kind of like the uh, the grown up version of your story. Well, you know, it's it's it's... There again, we speak about eras, right? Now, where you're talking about songs and memories, music and memories. So you ha- again, you always have to think: what was the era? What was going on? Uh, I, I get some songs are just specifically personal, but a lot of times they're not. They're bigger. They're larger than life. And I can. There was an era in those early '70s, and I'm just a little kid, really, right? I'm 10 or something, 11 years old. Well, where you would go past um, a burger joint, and they were, you know, just beginning to, to have FM radio, and they were just beginning to play album cuts, but it would be loud. So you'd be getting your burger, and, and you'd hear Bad Company or The Beatles or, or Maggie May loud. And I don't really, you know, it was like a summer thing, right? Like, I, it, I don't really see that happening. I, like, I can't recall the last time I went by, you know, a kind of an outdoor burger joint, and they, they had the music and the speaker's pointing out, and you're listening to rock and roll, and they probably would get in trouble now if they did it. But back then, that happened a lot. And, and uh, there's a place in, in Ontario called Weber's on Highway 11. It was the place to stop to get your burger and fries, and they were known as the place that played rock and roll. It was pretty cool. Are they still there? Yep. Okay, I'm going to Weber's. Uh, um, um, oh, you know, oh, I, Web, I thought you asked if I was still there. Weber's are still there, and they still play music loud. It's great, and it's still rock and roll. You know, um, you mentioned, you know, the era and no seatbelts. When my daughter was born, I said to my mom, you know, what kind of car seat did I have when I was little? And she said, you had a little, it was like a little car thing that would sit on your lap so you could pretend like you were steering. And I was like, (laughs) did it hold me in? And she's like, no. (laughs) 
Exactly. I, mem- I had one of those. Yep. I remember trying to mirror <laughs> my dad's metal, movements. We had metal Tonka trucks. We had no seat belts. Oh, my, yeah. my metal no, Tonka was... truck was rusted on the corners, oh, of too. Course, of yeah. course. My brother tripped over his, and then his bottom teeth went through with the, his bottom, like, lip eyes. Ah, it so was the glory days. Um, what, what was, uh, you said you've been to a lot of concerts. What would be your peak concert experience, would you think? Well, it's kind of an easy one. I've been to some really wonderful concerts, but I, I, I always have to come back to one particular concert, and it was the uh, era in which our favorite classic, Elton John, had taken a downturn. He was no longer the guy. He was putting out maybe blue moves and stuff like that. And so post the classic era, Elton John, but what he did was he went on on tour by himself with his piano, just him. And Ray Cooper would step in for a couple of songs, and I saw that in Toronto, and I was mesmerized it was just him and his piano he played every ballad he ever wrote it was an incredible evening he played songs that i hadn't even remembered to to like like ticking off of the caribou album uh and it was i mean he hadn't lost his voice yet it was just it was sort of the the end of that era of of the magnificent elton john before and i'm not saying he isn't still an incredible artist he certainly is but things changed after that but certainly we were lucky to be part of that era where you know goodbye elbic road was released kind of thing have you ever traveled a long way specifically to see a show uh funny you should ask that because it's actually been a, a kind of a desire for a while i, I keep thinking what artists am I not going to be able to see again? And, you know, well, oh, they're, they're playing in, in uh, Patagonia. Okay, I'm going to fly down there and see them. You know, and, and really, I actually, funny, again, I, that was my plan this year until the pandemic hit, was to go and catch a couple of bands. Um, I have some really great connections, so I can get, you know, in behind the scenes and stuff like that of a number of big bands. I was, I've, I've never seen ACDC. I wanted to go see them. Uh, so... Uh, the short answer is no, but I definitely <laughs> want to. I, what a great thing to do, to see a band in another country. It, 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 once you're in that stadium, you realize, oh, it's all the same. <laughs> right. What was the last show that you or a concert that you went to uh, before, you know, mid-March when everything slowed down? Hmm. Well, my, I, was, I was on my way to my own when the, when the pandemic shut us down. Um, we were actually going to play a, a, to about 2,000 people in Labrador. We landed. We unloaded the bus. And as we're unloading the bus, the guy goes, listen, I got some bad news for you. Um, you just got canceled. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. It's minus 30. And we just flew into Labrador in northern Quebec. And, yep, the pandemic hit. Like, that day was the day Canada Health had shut everything down. So we, we turned around and flew back home the next day. So that was my own concert. But... Uh, before that, uh, who did I go see? Um, hmm. It gets mixed up because sometimes I go play with people. I go, I, I get to play with Journey every year. I play with Johnny Lang every once in a while, uh, and that's who I end up seeing. Boy, you're taxing my brain here. Um, oh, I had tickets to 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 Jackson Brown, and then I I missed the show. Couldn't I couldn't make it? That broke my heart because I haven't seen Jackson Brown yet. Well, I went to see James Taylor a couple of years ago. Um, so you play with Journey. Uh, do they still have the Filipino guy as their lead singer? Yeah, and it's and and he's phenomenal. It's it's um, they they were fans. Of, a couple of them were fans of Survivor Man. That's how I ended up meeting them. So about once a year, until this all happened, about once a year, I would go and play uh, "Love and Touch and Squeezin'" with them, blowing harmonica, and me and Neil Schoen would have a, a duel on stage between guitar and harmonica. So that's always fun. 
This is, uh, I'll make this really quick, but one of my childhood friends, uh, before they hired the guy from the Philippines, uh, he spent a couple weeks with them out in their studio. His name's Jeremy Hunsicker. I uh, wrote a song with them and almost got to be the Steve Perry, but didn't because it didn't work out in the end. But it was like really cool for us who grew up with him. Yeah. And there, I mean, interestingly enough, Journey's one of those bands that <clears throat> probably loses and doesn't get a ton of respect because they're so you know, popular um, and were so kind of mainstream and, and girls like them, <laughs> a sort of thing uh, in that era. But I mean, technically speaking, Steve Smith and Neil Sean and uh, Ross Valerie, these guys are tremendous musicians, just powerhouses. Uh, and they just, they were in an era. So they were in that era of rock and roll that followed the my favorite era. They, they came in the late 70s and, and Things changed. Things changed then. Um, uh, it was a different. It was a different ambiance, if you will. But uh, still, powerhouse band. An incredible amount. Uh, John Cain's songs. An incredible amount of great uh, pop hits. How do you listen to music these days? And I mean, you know, like, you know, do you use uh, streaming service? Do you have MP3s on your phone? Do you have vinyl in your house? Well, it's a loaded question. Only in that that I am an, an avid listener, and that that's going to feed into my story for my last song. But uh, the I, at the moment, mostly listen the way I did when I was a kid. I, I now, I, I, long story short, I did the stupid thing and got rid of all of my albums in the, in the mid-80s and um, everything to do with turntable. Now I've got a great turntable system, and I'm upping it actually recently, and I listen to albums. There's your short answer. I sit down and I listen to albums. Well, that's great because not many people do that anymore. Um, and, and I mean vinyl. You, you know, like like for those who are listening who don't understand what an album is, <laughs> it's you know, I li it's vinyl. I listen to vinyl thirty three and a third and put on the needle, and it's there's nothing like that. But like, less you you um you'll sit down and listen through like an entire album like front to back. Like well, here's what here's what happened when I, I I I regretted getting away from them, and when I realized that was a mistake um, about nine years ago. I got back into them, and what I did was I I I bought the system again, and I and I got to get I got to get albums now. So used store here 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 I come. So out to the used album store, uh, and uh, the first album I got was Peter Gabriel So, and mm. I came home, and here's what happened. This was really weird. It was Christmas time. I thought I'll put the album on and I'll decorate the tree. I put the album on, and I sat down, and I couldn't move, and I. I realized that I had forgotten that when you put on a vinyl album and you've got about 20-odd minutes of listening ahead of you, you've entered into an unwritten contract with the artist that you're going to listen to what they did. And it doesn't, you're not going to run the vacuum, wash the dishes. You know, uh, you're going to sit and listen. And that's what I did. When I, that's what we used to do. We used to sit, my kids, I'll ask my kids, hey, that's kind of a good song. Who is that? Oh, I don't know. It's just a song I like. Well, yeah, but who did it? Oh, I don't know. I don't know who does it. I'm like, how can you? How can you not know? I knew everything about Elton John by the time I was 15 years old. You know, so so I believe that it's like this. It's almost a sacred kind of thing to put on somebody's artwork. Let's remember, that's what it is. It's art, and they're 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 giving you, they're presenting you their art, regardless of the business behind it. They're presenting you this art. You put on this art, or you sit and look at a, at a painting. You know, uh, but you put on this vinyl album of art and music and you sit down and then you listen to it. And then, uh, you know, 
maybe I've stretched it a bit. My wife and I often will put them on while we have dinner, but I often feel a little guilty. So most of the time, we just put them on, and we sit, and we listen, and do nothing else. Speaking of uh, albums and records and time travel, Richard, real quick, we're going to play just a little bit off of what you said was probably the first album you ever chose to own, so we can all go back together. any bells oh yeah <laughs> wow listen to the fidelity yep listen to the voice I'm, there i mean the powerhouse of talents you know in that era was no just unbelievable that's not that there aren't incredibly talented people now i mean adele or before, you know, a while ago, Dave Matthews and everybody in between. You know, super big talents. But the tone talents, of the 70s, was... you cannot beat that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, we've been asking this question for about 10 episodes now, and I want to continue and see we're collecting data. Do you listen to music from the radio in your car that is collecting FM radiation from towers? Huh. I'm not even sure what you mean by that. Great. You no. mean do I listen to <laughs> FM radio? Yes. Do you listen to FM radio? I, Are we going to be I, discussing I aliens in, in any moment now? I just want to just want to make sure. No, no, no. Are we going I to just... Bigfoot? What about? Are we, we haven't talked about Bigfoot yet. So okay, just... real quick. <laughs> what are your fee, three favorite Bigfoots? Or not favorite? Most uh, intriguing. I'm not even telling you. No, not okay. even gonna tell you. Okay, gonna... well then, then, then let's just ask this. So, uh, among the spectrum of of, of the big foots, um, the, the skunk ape, so, Florida, South Florida skunk ape, where does it fall on the spectrum from? You know, uh, how did you put it, Jane Goodall to aliens? Yeah, well, it's. I mean, I mean, the the, the skunk ape is is yeah. If if it falls anywhere, it falls in the category of Sasquatch. So there you go. And I'll probably be doing a documentary with Bigfoot Stacy Brown about that. That's that's his specialty out there. Uh, I'm out in Florida all the time. By the way, uh, so uh, yeah, the skunk ape's got uh, it's got quite a following going on. Pretty intriguing stuff. But I yeah, remember yeah. the way I look at it. Uh, see, now you got me there. You oh, you sucked me right in. You this. started it last. <laughs> <laughs> This is not fair. I was not going to say that word unless you did, but yeah. you opened the door. All I'm going to say is it's an interesting phenomenon. Oh no, and I have if there's if there's one thing my mind is, it's open about things. And so an you are phenomenon. you are not you are not we're not ambushing you here at all. Um, back to uh, do you listen to FM radio FM. in your car? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do, but I wear a tinfoil hat while I do it. Okay. Well, no. I just we we are learning that young or old, most people are like, no, yeah, yeah. you know, I've got I've got Sirius, I've got a Bluetooth, I play, you know what I mean? Like, I think like, Les broke the streak. Yeah, you did. You broke the streak. So. Oh, really? What was the streak? Well, like like the last ten or so guests have all been like, nope, I don't really, you know, I, t- I listen to NPR, maybe I listen to public broadcasting, but I don't like listen to the rock station if, if or they whatever. To, if oh, they listen to music well, in their you know car, what? No, no. Yeah, I mean, they listen to Spotify. I, I'm definitely. Um, a bit news addicted, so NPR is a big go-to for me. And sitting, I'm actually for the first time ever sitting in Jefferson Public Radio uh, right now as I'm talking to you. And I, I oh God, I'm a big fan. Um, I'm hopefully I'm making those guys behind the screen over the window over there smile. But, um, but musically speaking, on the way here, no, I scan the band as we used to say, and I, I scan the band listening for. Uh, Listening for those songs of memories, or say if I want to hear something new or, or be intrigued, like do it tonight. What's it, what, that's a good guitar riff. What's this all about? And then I'll listen. And and I mean, I try as a as a writer, as a musician, as an open-minded person, I try really hard on occasion, especially long drives, to listen to country music, um, classical music, rap music, uh, hip hop. I'll try to listen to all of that, but it's pretty hard with everything we've discussed so far for me not to default. 
to classic rock. It's really hard. Now, I don't necessarily leave on Sweet Home Alabama when it comes on. I'll probably <laughs> switch. Maybe that one's overdone it for me. But, but uh, if especially if I hear something I haven't heard in a while, you know, you throw on Gary Wright's Dreamweavers or Rescue Me Like You Just Played, you know, if we go back that far or... I don't know, any, like the Beatles Revolution, just something I haven't heard in a long time, then I'm cranking it. So yes, I do. I, I listen to music on the radio. And what I like about the radio version of music is I don't have a choice. It's their choice. And it does lead me into some places that are fun sometimes. And also, as a singer, yep, I'm that guy. I, I use it to practice my voice. <laughs> and and I, you learn over time, like, I can sing almost all the notes that Chicago you know, that, that uh, the, the singers in Chicago sang. Almost all. I can sing almost all the notes of Burton Cummings from the Guess Who. Almost all the notes of Elton John. So when they're on, I practice my voice. I work on my, my vocal range. Speaking of singing, do you have any TV theme songs committed to memory that you would sing with us? Oh, my gosh. Uh, um, oh, and we will pull it up on, on YouTube so we have something to and sing we'll along to. Okay, you ready? Okay, here, no, do you want to just do it? Here, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Farm living is the life for me. To me. Uh, land spread around. Nope, not, not yet. Farm living is the life for me. Uh, we'll pull it up on YouTube so we can. Land spread around. York is where I'd rather stay. I get allergic smelling hay. I just adore a penthouse view. Darling, I love you, but give me Park Avenue. The chores. The stores. Fresh air. Times Square. You are my wife. Goodbye, city life. Green acres, we are here. I knew all the words to that right after you said them. perfect. Do you want to know why I know that? Because I sang it to my wife yesterday while we were hiking along the trail. Aww. There you go. Did you watch it as well? No, no. I probably haven't seen it in 30 years. But right. It's so perfect. It's the things that we remember. How strange that music has a way to make us remember certain times and places. And that's another genre, isn't it? TV show theme songs. That was really a thing. Is it not now? Nah. Not really. Not, no, no, not, not really. When I, when, I, when I produced Survivor Man, I endeavored to make the theme song for Survivor Man, which I wrote, a memorable piece. Now, there's no lyrics to it, but I, I, think I, I think I hit my mark because I've been told many, many times, when I hear those first notes of the Survivor Man theme song, I go running into the living room to watch the show, and I think, okay, okay, I did it. I accomplished it. Okay, it's time for song three, but for that, you, real quick, if you were a, a championship wrestler, what song would you come in on? Oh, that's probably, how can it not be something heavy? Probably, uh, it's probably going to be ACDC. And maybe, uh, if I'm feeling mean and dirty, maybe Hell's Bells. If I'm feeling energetic, maybe Back in Black. Good answer. Okay, now it's time to pivot from Hell's Bells and Black and Black to Frank Sinatra. So go. <laughs> well, I, th- I thought, you know, as I said, it's really hard for me to not 
pick a thousand or two thousand songs for you. And I and I took you from the era of the the switchover of the decade from the '60s to the '70s into the early '70s with the first two songs. So what happens after that? Well, it gets weird after that. You know, um, music becomes a little more. It just becomes. I don't know what. Well, I don't know what it becomes, but it, it definitely changed and went to places that were not the same. The era was gone. I think we were beginning to lose some of the innocence and the naivete of that era. We get into the 80s and no offense to anybody listening, but I hated the music of the 80s. It was the music of the 80s that sent me away from music at all. I quit music because of the music of the 80s. And and so to me, the De- Depeche Mode and Spandau Ballet and the Thompson Twins, I was just, I was like, ah. Ugh. It's just what happened to rock and roll, and of course, if you liked rock and roll, that was dinosaur rock. Oh, dinosaur music! You can't. And I, I made a mistake. What I didn't see coming was Pearl Jam, Nirvana, and Soundgarden. I didn't see them coming. I didn't see Guns N' Roses coming. I thought, well, that's it. If Madonna and Cyndi Lauper are it, I'm out. I'm, I'm. I'm done. Don't even talk. And my some of my favorites, the Sting and Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins, they're all doing this other stuff. And I'm out. I'm out. And I quit. And I became an outdoor adventurer. So we so we jump ahead. I didn't even know the whole Pearl Jam scene happened. I missed that. I was in a canoe in in northern North America. So I missed all of that. So I missed the '90s. Uh, sadly, because now that I listen back to it, I think, because ah, in the end, guys, there was no such thing as grunge. I mean, if you ask Pearl Jam, they're just playing rock and roll. When Mike Recruity's playing his solo to Alive, he's just doing Freebird. So rock and roll came back, and I missed that. So I was too young the first time for rock and roll, too old for it the second time. So now I'm an adult, and I'm a filmmaker, and an outdoor adventurer, and music is not the center of my life, even though I'm still jamming out. You know, mostly I'm just jamming to the blues and blowing my harmonica and jumping up on stage here and there, and just, just kind of doing that, you know, kind of uh, living that way uh, with blues music and stuff. But along the way comes the story we just touched on, which is I started listening to albums again. So then uh, uh, just a couple of years ago, my wife and I started listening to albums, and we started buying up jazz. We were doing a lot of Chet Baker and, and Charles Mingus and Miles Davis, uh, and then we were doing, you know, Rod Stewart, Every Picture Tells a Story, and The Best of Bread, for gosh sakes, on a Sunday morning, and, um, you know, albums like that. And then, but she was a great lover of Frank Sinatra. So this is a reason, I, what I wanted to do was, was bookend this story by saying this is a more recent memorable piece of music. So this memory that I'm giving you right now and this music just happened this year. And it happened because of the pandemic. And we were listening to these different albums and I knew she loved Frank Sinatra. We didn't have any. So I went to my favorite store, uh, the music co-op in in Ashland, uh, Southern Oregon. And I went in, I was talking to John and the pandemic had just hit and things were not looking good. And, And I thought, you know, well, I, I can I can do this. I can afford this. So I so I, I, I bought a couple albums, you know, to, and then I looked and I saw and there was this box set, and it was every Capitol album on, on the Capitol record label, every Capitol album that Frank Zappa, uh, Frank Zappa, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm tangenting somewhere else in my brain. I'd like to hear Frank Zappa yeah. do Frank Sinatra. That's exactly the whole album with that. I mean Frank Zappa, Frank Sinatra. I mean, come on, it's pretty much six of one, half a dozen of the other. Uh, Frank Sinatra um, box set. 23 albums, every album he did for Capitol Records. And it was a hefty price, and I thought, you know what? Nah, I can afford this. So I bought it just because I wanted to support this local business. And I went home, and then Caroline and I listened to 
23 Frank Sinatra albums back to back every single night, one at a time for 23 state nights. And I mean, I became certainly saturated with Frank Sinatra, but it's created this, it's created a memory. The memory of Frank's voice is forever, you know, how do we say, indelibly etched in my brain as, as these, uh, these, these pandemic dinner moments with Caroline listening to Frank Sinatra. And that's so, it was the creation of a memory. So why did you pick this particular song? Because I like it. I could have picked so many. I'm not even sure if that song's actually part of that package set, to be honest with you, which would be ironic. But in any event, every time I think Frank Sinatra, I just think, come fly with me. I just always think that. So that's why. Okay. I've got, a, I've got the, the, like the original recorded version, and then I have a live version. Which would you like to listen to? Oh, yeah. Let's go. You know what? Stay the course. Uh, I was so glad you guys actually picked the correct version of Indian Reservation because there are a couple of wrong versions of that. But uh, let's stick with the original. All right, this is uh, Frank Sinatra. Come fly with me. Are you a dancer, Les Stroud? I'm trying to imagine if you and your wife would be dancing to that in your house. I can cut a rug. I can cut a rug. So you're you're okay with that? I'm totally okay with that. What about karaoke? (laughs) Uh, No. It's really, as as a, a not very good singing performer... Karaoke kind of irks me, uh, but that said, we were in Belize filming Sur- uh, Survivor Man one time, and this was pre pre me going out to do my my thing on that on that to film that show, and we're in this little tiny town, and they literally have one bar, and it's a karaoke bar with like a, a sand beach floor, and we but the guy who was I had with me. Uh, to be my field producer that was helping me work things out. He was actually a tremendous performer and singer. So uh, we, uh, we, we went in there, and we acted really nonchalant, like, yeah, oh, this is cool. Oh, do you mind if we go up and sing a bit? Okay. And then we go up. So I go up, and I do uh, Feeling All Right, the Joe Cocker version, and he gets up, and he does Just a Gigolo, the David Lee Roth, and we and we just like – nailed it and people's jaws were dropped and then we turned and walked out the door <laughs> and it was like the next day in on the little town it was like those those canadians did you hear about those canadians in the karaoke bar and we were like oh yeah we're kings for a day here and then and someone in that bar later saw you on the television and was like that's that guy yeah that's yep. a song story for someone out there like exactly in the, ether, in the world somewhere it's like these two random canadian guys came in and nailed these songs <laughs> do you ever think about that as a performer that you know you may be part of somebody else's song story you know being on stage with you know um uh, what's his name from the doors robbie krieger or something like that you know <laughs> yeah i'm sure robbie thinks about me all the time well no i don't mean for him i mean for somebody in the audience no yeah somebody you know, might like somebody like, might have got, yeah. somebody somebody might have proposed to their wife later that night and that yeah. you know what i mean like well i think you know but what you're touching on is something interesting and i, I kind of think so and hope so but what it is that i hope and think is is that i i believe that whatever you if you're creating in this life in this world whatever that creation is it doesn't have to be super artistic like writing a book or writing a song or painting a picture it could be your you could be a house builder uh, uh, but or you could be creating a moment when you create i think that 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 it's like that moment or that thing takes on its own life force, its own energy, and because I'm someone who does this a lot as a filmmaker, I'm very fortunate to see Facebook posts about how oh you know this happened or when I you know your show changed my life or your song changed my life or something like that. But most of the time, we don't get to know what our 
the moments we've created, what, what impact that has had on other people. And so I think, I think something you might say to me in this conversation, one line, one sentence, may trigger something for somebody. And they always remember that. Or they might have a new perspective because of one line in a sentence. So I, I guess the short answer to this is I believe and hope that, that lots of the little bits of energy that we put out there, which is why we should put out good energy, uh, affect people in ways we will never know. But I, but I think that they do. I take responsibility for that, I suppose, in, in the end. So I hope, I hope I'm part of a song story for somebody. I think that would be really lovely. Cheers to that. And one thing we've learned from doing this show is I'll be out in the world and I'll hear, you know, next time I hear Come Fly With Me by Frank Sinatra, I'm going to be in your living room with your wife listening to a box set. Well, yeah, okay, we're going to have to have a meeting about that. Because am I there or am I not there? <laughs> oh, well, no, oh, we're yeah. all going to be I, there. I'm, it's just, 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 just in my head. Um, <laughs> so um, um, real quick, um, so A, we have this sort of goal in this show to get really big in Canada. So just so you know, you're helping us out with that mission. Um, uh, two people who we've had on the show who are musicians in, um, you know, in and around Toronto. Do you know uh, David Newland by chance? I know or of him. Sh- I have not met him. but I certainly Or Shauna Caspi. Shauna Caspi, I can't say I know, no. Okay, they're just both part of that folk scene, and they've come through. She came through town, we interviewed her, and then he, we did remotely because she recommended him. But what I really wanted to bring up was you were in the woods, and that's why you missed Nirvana and Pearl Jam. I missed them because I accidentally stumbled across this band called Moxie Fruvis. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. How, How random is that for a guy from South Florida? Yeah, no kidding. Wow, that's, I haven't heard that name even said in a long time. Yeah. Um, uh, do you remember, like, you would, you would have yep. been a grown-up when, when they had their little moment. Do you remember thinking, wow, those guys are weird or what? Uh, well, I remember that this, they had that esoteric kind of approach to things. Um, to remind me where they're from. Are, are they not Canadian, Moxie Fruits? They're, they are. They're yeah, from Toronto. Yeah. They're, yeah. That's right. Uh, and that was an era. No, I wasn't. I don't think I was an adult when Moxie Fruvis was happening. Early maybe, 90s. Yeah, I suppose, eh? I mean, Les would have been in the woods for that, too, though. Yeah, well, that's true. No, that's well. <laughs> right? Good, good point. Good and, you point. know, we, we, when we were touch, touching on music, you know, um, and when I was talking about the, I like to have an eclectic approach, you know, one, I, I thought of a lot of songs I wanted you guys to play that would have been, dare I say it, progressive rock. And, but, of course, those songs are all 23 minutes long. Uh, but that was a huge influence on me. Yes, Genesis, Pink Floyd, King Crimson. Uh, those things, those those songs uh, were even Je- even Jethro Tull or even Elton John doing Funeral for a Friend, th- th- that mm-hmm. sort of bigger, larger-than-life music. And a lot of those musicians came from classical and jazz training, too, which is why it was like that. I miss that. I miss a lot of that. That that disappeared, along with you know, rock and roll and stuff, but that disappeared. It became Rush, and then later it became Radiohead, and a little bit, and it became Tool. But other than that, it was not a, not a big thing. I've, I'm releasing a new album, my double vinyl album for the first time ever on vinyl. That I'm, this here comes shameless plug time. I'm releasing in 2021. Is it's a re-release of my album Mother Earth, which basically is progressive rock. Producer hates when I call it that. It's a rock album. No, it's it's progressive rock. When did it um, come out originally? Uh, just now, just like this past year. But I'm I'm keeping it. it you could oh, you gotcha, can, gotcha. It's on Spotify. It's called Mother Earth. It's on Spotify. Slash plays on it, and Steve Vai plays on it. But I'm keeping it just kind of, other than this particular interview, I'm keeping it really low-key because I want to do the big re-release as a double vinyl album. But progressive rock, that's something that I miss, you know. And Self-indulgent, sure, okay, I get it. But, man, it was good. (laughs) Have you imagined what it's going to feel like to drop the needle on your own vinyl album? 
I cannot imagine. I'm, I'm dying. To, I just can't wait because what I'm going to do, given the pandemic, given all of the situations we have, and, uh, and also, let's face it, I'm not a musical draw. You know, uh, I'm sure if I'm doing a free talk about Survivor Man, you could get a thousand people there, maybe two thousand. It's happened. But if I'm going to go play in a in a club, uh, in a performance arts center, if I get sixty people there, it's it's or a hundred people, it's a good night. Um, so what I'm going to do with Mother Earth is I'm going to hold listening parties from no more than fifty people, socially distanced. All of that stuff will be set up, and I'm going to play it on a killer sound system, and I'm going to tell my stories behind the songs on the Mother Earth album. Maybe do a couple of acoustic renditions and call it a night. So I'm I'm anxious to do this when when things start to breathe breathe again. If you could make Southwest Florida a stop on that listening party, I, I think maybe we could facilitate something. Just saying. Just want to throw that out there. Ah, well, that's that's a plan. I, I, it's not likely that a year goes by that I do not find my way to Florida. I'm, I'm, and, and WGCU, which is uh, PBS, uh, the public te- television station down there that is airing, airing my show Wild Harvest and that, I mean, they've been wonderful to me, great supporters. So I'm, I'm coming down just well, to hang us. out with them. That's so I'll us. be there. Thank you so much. That's the other side of our building. Yes, we're, we're, in the, we're in the video-free side. <laughs> ah, well, then just say hello to Amy and Toby if you see them. Oh my gosh! I yes, yeah. we work. It's with a small her all building. This is wonderful. We, we all work together. Yeah, we all a- help Amy, grow, as grow the them. as the crow flies, Amy is fifty yards away from yeah. me. Yeah. Well, that, 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 those two ladies. Uh, I know that listeners don't know who we're speaking of, but we'll just go to Amy and Toby. Those two ladies are responsible, really, in many ways, for for uh, me now having a series on public television. And we're not. We're not. We're just beginning. We're just getting started. I'd love to hear that. That is great. Um, Okay, we're going to sort of start coasting this thing in for a landing, so I'm going to give you kind of a speed round. Are you cool with that? Oh, I'm cool. Okay. As long as you're cool with my answers. Uh, If you could learn another instrument instantly, what would it be? Clarinet. When was the last time you wore snowshoes? Last winter. Um, uh, Band or musician you've most recently discovered? Oh, uh, um, most recently discovered band musician. I most recently discovered. Most recently discovered. Uh, gosh, sorry. How about how about Chet Baker? Oh, okay. I know. Um, Did you mean you somebody fa- new? Because that's not new. No, that's okay. Uh, new for you. Did, yeah, didn't mean new. Um, do you have a favorite band of all time? And if you don't, you know, that's, I know, like, kind of like, what's your favorite child? But maybe rephrase it as, like, what have you spent the most time paying attention to and listening to of all time? Mm. Classic Elton John. Mm. Uh, was there a fourth song that was that you kind of had to kick off the island right before these three? Or did you just have so many, you just, this is where you wound up? Did you up? make a Survivor reference in front of Lestra? <laughs> uh, uh, apparently, I did not mean to, but I think I did. I had a, I had a, a fourth, a weird song. I was going to try to, I was trying to walk you chronologically, and I was going to tap into a song from my college years, which was uh, kind of the end of rock and roll years. It was 1981, 82, and it was a song called uh, Child's Play by an obscure band called Modern Eon, which is sort of a punk band. Hmm. Um, what, what album would you choose if you could only listen to one album ever again, and it can't be Elton John? Uh, Jesse's Jig by Steve Goodman. Did you make that up? I did not. You know who Steve Goodman oh, is? I've never heard of <laughs> no, that's an album, Mike. I don't, I don't know any of those words in that order. I'm sorry. Uh, so I Steve, nodded my head like, yeah. Steve Goodman uh, was a longtime partner and co-writer with John Prine. 
and oh. uh, wrote uh, "Riding on the City of New Orleans." Oh my wrote, God! No, that, that. I do know that. I do right. know that because no, well, you, what oh, you know is probably the Arlo Guthrie version. But Steve no, Goodman I know that it. version because we have a guy who used to. This is I'm going there. That used to run our radio reading service, which is where people read oh, um, for the blind. Um, he's a blind man. He's a fantastic harmonica player, and we're trying to get him on the show. And that was who he said was definitely going to be one of his songs. So he sent me a YouTube link, and he made me watch that guy play that song. And it was awesome. Oh, well, yeah. that that was my other song. You, you asked for a fourth, but a fifth was I was going to have you uh, play um, uh, probably uh, Mama Don't Allow by Steve Goodman. Uh, but that album is called Jesse's Jig and Other Favorites. It's his best of. Oh, it's just it's phenomenal. His playing, his 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 gypsy jazz guitar playing is un- unbelievable. And Steve McG- Goodman is just his writing, his voice, everything. So what he, I um, what I. Is. What I saw was just so – he was almost entrancing with his just command of what he was doing, if that makes sense. Oh, you got to listen to that whole album, and that's, that's it exactly. Well, then I will. Um, okay, if you could collaborate uh, playing music with anyone, alive or dead, who would it be? Ooh, you hurt, got me there with the alive or dead. Uh, uh, probably – you know, this is weird. But I just always thought we could do a really good double album, to, a really good album together. Uh, Cheryl Crow, hmm. early Cheryl Crow, like Cheryl Crow, her first album phase. Um, uh, are there any covers of songs that you think are better than the original? That's a, yeah, probably lots. Yeah, okay. Sorry, it's random, but you asked. Um, uh, God, there's, there's probably hundreds, but uh, April Wine's version of Bad Side of the Moon, which was actually written by Elton John. All right. Um, what would 14-year-old Les Stroud think of you today and what you've accomplished in your life? <laughs> oh, how, many, how much time have you got, guys? <sighs> I'm, we've got all the time in the world. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think 14-year-old would go, Okay. 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 Good. All right. That's that's better. Good. I think that's what fourteen-year-old me would say. Does that mean you were a soft-spoken child when you were a kid? No, no. It means childhood sucked for me, and 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 it, adulthood has not. And I and I think I think it would have been, I think there would have been, uh, it would have been like fourteen-year-old me going, okay, I was vindicated. I get I get this now. Cool. Um, okay, Richard, do the three songs question sure, this time. Sure, sure. All right, Les, uh, thinking of the three songs that you've used for the show today, um, you have to decide between them. First, one of them is a song that you can guarantee will forever go forward into history and memory. Everybody will know it. It'll never fall out of kind of listener favor. Number two, one of them is the only song you'll ever get to listen to ever again. So anytime you listen to music, you can only listen to that song and three, one of those songs have to, has to be erased from history and existence. Go. And it's of the three that I chose? Yeah, your three your songs. Your three. Oh, well, Maggie Mae, Maggie Mae, and... Um, and no, 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 they're, they're mutually exclusive. So which one, which one is the one that's going to, you guarantee, people will always have? Oh, okay, come fly with me. Okay, and then which one are you going to be the, which one's going to be the only song you get to listen to for the rest of your life? Maggie Mae. And then Indian Reservation. 
And then Indian nice. Reservation's gone. All Indian right. Reservation okay. disappears from existence in a puff of logic. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, can you recommend three people who you'll share this podcast with and who you think we might be able to get on as guests? And bear in mind, remote works fine. I'm not telling anybody I did this podcast. I'm going to erase <laughs> this from my memory. Rude. The second I walk out that door... I'm going to go, what was that all about? Oh, and we're going to, like, spread it as far as we can, which is, you know, not very far so far, but we're hoping. <laughs> no, can you recommend three people? Well, uh, friends of mine, uh, you know, my producer is Mike Klink, and he also produced Guns N' Roses um, and and uh, Beth Hart and a lot of – so he'd be a great one. Um, uh, Bruce Coburn is, a, is a, an acquaintance and a friend of mine. I've done some work with Bruce Coburn in the past. He's an incredible Canadian artist. If, are you familiar with Bruce Coburn? I am not. Oh, my goodness. Uh, if I had a rocket launcher and wondering where the lions are, um, powerful Canadian musician. You can't, you, can't, you can't say the word Canadian folk music and not say Bruce Coburn. I think he won the Juno, like, I don't know, right. 18 times or something for best folk album. Um, and Bruce Coburn would be another great one. Uh, to, to, a highly intelligent man uh, sort of thing. Um, and do you want just musical people? Is that what you're asking? No, no, no. Uh, Most people that do this show don't even play music. It's just the little lens that we use. Mm. Who else would I love to hear on this show? Who do, who do I? And then you have to promise that you'll share it with them and that uh-huh. maybe you well, can Mike help us up with them too. Mike and Bruce, that's easy. So if someone else that I actually have, oh, so someone's, I, yeah, that's right. A friend, that's right. You said, uh, you may, oh, sorry. I'm thinking now. Um, hmm. Johnny Lang. Johnny Lang? Yeah, blues guitar player. Yeah. Well, if you can do your best to put this into their you know, minds, we would love that. It's, this is like our – it's like Amway. You know, we, we, we <laughs> use this like a – it's like a marketing ploy. Um, Les Stroud, thank you so much for doing this. This has really been great. I, you know, thank you for taking this much time and driving. How far did you have to drive, by the way? Um, that's about an hour. I'm in, wow. uh, I'm in, yeah, I'm in Ashland, Oregon. Um, oh, it's a beautiful drive, though. It's an easy drive. And, and the so horrifying uh, fires that we've had here. Um, I actually, I'm, I serve on search and rescue here in Ashland, and, I, and I've only just seen them from the highway. So actually on the way back, I'm going to drive right through the middle of them because I'm, I'm also doing a documentary for PBS, uh, public television, I should say. I've got to get that straight. I'm sorry, they're called PBS stations. But my company is actually American Public Television, right. and and, I, and it's it's hard to, not to have that flow off the tongue, uh, as, but it's basically the PBS stations or the public television stations. My new special is called Surviving Disasters with Les Stroud, and in it I'll be empowering people on how they can do exactly that: tornadoes, hurricanes, wildfires, floods, blackouts, freezeouts, you name it, pandemics. So I'm going to drive back through. Uh, to see the the devastation today for the first time because I've been up in Canada for the majority of the, of the uh, pandemic. All right, and uh, go ahead and uh, plug the other show as well before you go. So I am so thrilled to have on public television Les Stroud's Wild Harvest about local foraging, make very accessible show, Surviving Disasters with Les Stroud. That one's coming up in March. Uh, Wild Harvest is on right now. And in November, uh, my feature film, feature documentary film called La Loche, which is about a school shooting in an indigenous community in northern Canada and a healing canoe trip that took place afterwards. So those three things are, are imminent on uh, public television near you. And remind us what your album title is again. My double vinyl album is called, uh, this is all shameless plugging, uh, Mother we're, Earth. We're teeing it up. All good. Uh, coming up, Mother Earth coming out this year, but it is available right now on Spotify digitally. My new children's book, 
with Anik Press out of uh, Toronto, Canada is called Wild Outside, Around the World with Survivor Man for 8 to 12-year-olds. And my new podcast is called Surviving Life with Les Stroud. And um, that's I like to talk to a lot of artistic people, and I ask them a lot about life, what keeps them going, what inspires them kind of thing. So, yeah, lots of my, more on my plate this past six months than the past five to six years. It's really crazy. Awesome. Uh, is that the station that you're at? Is that your local public radio station? Jefferson Public Radio. It is indeed. I'll be listening to them all the way home. Are you an active member, Les? Of course I am. Okay. Just wanted to make sure. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you, Les. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave us and our listeners with? Uh, No, but I just think, uh, you know, on this subject matter that you're doing, I think it's a good thing to... I, I feel like it's a lament that the that I, 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 I'm going to sound like an old guy, but the younger generation, those kids today, uh, they they're they're missing out on attaching music to memories. We we lived and breathed that. Everything had a musical memory in my in when I was growing up. That you couldn't have a memory without music associated with it. Pretty much, maybe maybe some smells. You know, smell of a pizza and mimical pizza would trigger something, or a sound would trigger a memory. But mostly. It was music. And I, I guess in, if, if I have a parting word, uh, it would be, uh, and I'm not sure if I'm, am I playing any music for you today? Uh, we're hoping that after we finish this, you will play that, yes. All right. Well, then my parting word would be that. If you can, find a way to make music be a trigger for your memories. And you won't know it now, but you'll know it in eight years. Well, that, on that note, thank you so much, Les. Thank you. We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Callaghan is online content producer and sometimes hosts. Christophus is executive producer. Our theme song was made by Dave 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 Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. For this week's parting tune, we are handing it off to Les and his guitar.
Keep listening. Next time on Three Song Stories. Next thing I know, I'm standing in the middle of an Illinois cornfield in July, and it's like 110, and I'm like, what in the hell am I doing here, you know? Trying to hold this uh, stick up in the— Yeah, you were, you were the stick holder. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> He's like, here, hold this steady, you know, and then just walked away, and I'm standing there. You can't see anything.